Welcome to Courageous Conversations, a podcast exploring the intimate side of activism. I'm Gillian Riley. And I'm Jen Warren. And through these interviews, we seek to understand what it really takes to show up and make change during this critical time in history. In an effort to become more effective change makers. Yes. Ultimately, our aim is to promote authentic engagement as a vital component of social justice and social change. Kajal Ramjathan Kio is a human rights lawyer and executive director of the Southern African Legal Center. She operates on the front line of courtrooms and refugee detention centers across Southern Africa, bringing justice and empathy to people who most of us understand only through news headlines. At a time when many of us are retreating to our geographic corners and comfortable identities, Kajal is navigating the middle ground, a space between us and them. A restorer of dignity and a voice for the voiceless, Kajal works through the courts to help chart a principled path through increasingly difficult issues of identity and belonging. I'm a human rights lawyer. I'm also the director of the Southern Africa Litigation Centre, which is a regional non-governmental organisation based in South Africa and operating in 11 Southern African countries tasked with promoting human rights and protecting the rule of law. And you're a lawyer by training? I am a lawyer by training, yes. I've been working in this area for nearly 16 years. You feel like you've landed in a place where you belong, if you will? Absolutely. I mean, the human rights sector is certainly a space where I feel I can make an impact, that I can contribute, and the work that I'm able to do in the sector is worth something. As somebody who deals with these issues on a daily basis, when you step back and you watch the news either in this region or globally and see the reaction to people, which is fear, what would you say Mm -hmm. to those people who see them as frightening or demanding of Mm -hmm. things? If we all look back at ourselves and our families and where we come from, there will be a, a very serious appreciation that each of us is a migrant or each of us is a refugee. So even if you've never had to flee based on persecution, somewhere in your life, either very recently or going back years and years, your family has had to move for various reasons. So I think we all have some kind of migration in our history. And once you come to realize that and understand that and accept that we are all migrants at one time of our lives and the lives of our families, you get to accept that migration is a way of life. It's the way things are. It's not going to change. And what we can do about it is try to better manage it. And has your own history of migration affected how you approach these issues? I mean, obviously I am a migrant. My family would have arrived from India as indentured laborers many hundreds of years ago. And I'm probably fifth or sixth generation in this country. So of course I have a migration background as well, caused by colonial slave practices. And most people are in a very similar circumstance. Either they moved because they chose to move or their families chose to move or they were forced to move. So I think migration becomes a very real reality if you look at yourself and your situation and then you look at other people who are moving at the current time under very, very trying circumstances. So you are in many ways at the leading edge of issues that are so relevant now globally. 
working on behalf of refugees, for instance, and other vulnerable people, mm -hmm. you're in the space that many of us only read about. Absolutely. I mean, I guess you see it on the news almost on a daily basis. We'll have a very basic understanding of what those issues are, but without really understanding who refugees and asylum seekers are and why they're fleeing and why they're forced to flee and the fact that they are not moving voluntarily. They are forced to flee. For many of us, they are just an object of sympathy or scorn. So help us understand the mm -hmm. human side mm -hmm. of this. We see asylum seekers and refugees daily without even realizing who they are. Einstein was a refugee. And mostly asylum seekers are people who are forced to flee from their homes on account of war or civil unrest or because of persecution based on various grounds. So a sexual orientation might be one of them. So if you live in a country where same-sex acts are criminalized and you are homosexual or lesbian, your life becomes intolerable and you are forced to flee. And we see situations like the DRC and the Central African Republic where rape is used as a tool of war and women are fleeing because they have been raped or because there is a very serious threat of rape. And you provide them what? Legal representation? Well, what I had been doing at Lawyers for Human Rights is a range of different things. But essentially it's to provide legal assistance, legal representation. So people arrive in a country they've never been before, don't know how the processes work, don't know what they need to do to apply for documents, don't know where to go, very often don't speak the language, don't understand the cultural norms. So. It is to provide asylum seekers with assistance to integrate into local communities and to get access to very basic services, services which you and I on a day-to-day -day basis will never think about having difficulty trying to access medical services, access to a hospital, access to primary schools for your child, very, very basic things. Dignity. In many ways, that's what you're helping these people to regain because, mm -hmm. as you say, these are things that I take for granted recognizing that everybody has dignity in whatever you're trying to do with them or for them is a way for somebody to reclaim any lost dignity. It goes a long way for somebody who's being treated poorly in every other area. And you see the courts as a vibrant means of restoring justice, restoring dignity and rights. I think the courts are one way of restoring justice, having access to justice, recognizing rights. It's not the only way. I think different arms of government have their role to play, but they're not always playing it. And it's most often when government services and administrative services are not playing their role well that one has to resort to the courts. Mm. If those systems are operating well, you don't need to resort to courts. So in many ways, you are at the front line not only of issues relating to discrimination, but essentially holding other bodies of government to account, trying to force them, if that's the appropriate word, to do the right thing, to do what's required of them? Absolutely. I mean, if we go back to the refugee sector, if the whole asylum process worked as it should, in South Africa, there's a six-month period from the time that you arrive to when you're meant to have your asylum determination finalized. In practice, it can take up to eight years, and you're in a period of limbo the whole time, with a temporary permit and unable to access any kind of services and very little by means of social welfare. So if that system operated the way it should, 
Asylum seekers would be treated with the respect and dignity that they deserve and wouldn't be in the crisis that they find themselves. What does your family think about this yeah, work well, of yours? My husband knows exactly what I'm doing. My children are still a little bit young. Both my parents are generally very accommodating and very mm. supportive, right. which is greatly appreciated. Yes. <laughs> and the children, two years ago, when we were pursuing the arrest warrant for President Omar al-Bashir of Sudan when he arrived in South Africa. It was over a period of three or four days and they saw very little of me over that time. They saw more of me on the TV. There was TV coverage of the courtroom, of all the court arguments, so they saw more of me sitting in the courtroom than at home with them, but still failed to understand. They were like, why are you chasing this man? <laughs> It's just not something I could explain to them at the time, mm. actually, except that he was a very bad man. Yes, mommy's going after <laughs> the bad guys. How interesting for them, yeah. I mean, to see you in that role. It's not something that most no, kids get no, to see. No, no, no. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so are you also working at a systemic level in terms of trying to address those failings, or are you doing it on a case-by-case -case basis? I'm currently not working within the South African refugee sector, but it's work that I've did for a number of years. I've moved on now and working on migration on a regional level and doing a fair bit of work in Malawi and in Zambia, which is mostly related to asylum seekers in detention, who are all on their way to South Africa. So is your effort an attempt to deal with it there before it comes here? Well, essentially what we're trying to do with asylum seekers in detention is to try and explain to host governments that people shouldn't be detained on immigration grounds. Malawi, for example, has a transit permit which they can issue to people who are transiting through their country. They've never issued this permit. It's in their law, they're entitled to do it, but they're afraid of South Africa's reaction if they allowed people free passage through their country when they know they're traveling to South Africa. So South Africa appears to be strong-arming Southern African governments to try and deter migrants who are traveling through their territories to arrive here, even though we know it's the ultimate destination. South Africa appears to have a very strong influence on Zambia and Malawi and Mozambique to try to get them to limit the numbers of migrants that can ultimately enter South Africa. And so, as you do this work, I want you to help us get underneath the skin of it a little bit because mm -hmm. you're dealing with issues that seem to be, dare I say, getting worse, not better, getting bigger, not smaller. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what is that like to find yourself confronting these things day in and day out? I think it's very important work to continue to challenge unlawful practices in particular, and bad practices as a rule. So even though a practice might be legal, it might be very bad in respecting rights. So in South Africa, many years ago, would detain somebody who was undocumented and could detain them indefinitely before they deported them. As a result of years of sustained litigation, we've now established rules that South Africa may only detain people on immigration grounds for a maximum of 120 days. And thereafter, they must release or deport. And establishing important precedents allows other people a means of access to justice because you set the rules in place. I mean, you must encounter deep, visceral emotion. Yeah. I mean, you're dealing with traumatized mm -hmm. people. 
How do you keep you know, seeing each person afresh? Or do you not? Do you have to switch something off in order to keep yeah. going back? It's quite difficult. I think after a while you become so good at doing your job that you know to ask five questions to get exactly the response and the answers you're seeking to be able to know what to do for somebody. There's a measure of debriefing and counselling in the work that you're doing. But you're also, you're mindful of the fact that sitting outside is 20 more people waiting to see you. So you've got to be efficient about it as well, but with some measure of kindness. It's an incredible so balancing act. It's extremely difficult. I don't think you're the same person every day. Some days you're on a shorter fuse and some days you're more relaxed and very likely to let somebody let you into their story. You're carrying lots of stories yeah. with you, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, do you feel those stories yeah, yeah, with yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and so many of us have shut down in the face of human suffering because mm -hmm. we feel like we're confronted with it mm -hmm. too much. Mm -hmm. You're doing the opposite. You're continuing to engage with it in an effort to make the system mm -hmm. work better. That continuing to remain open to it um, yeah, must require a, a very mindful management I think it also requires a good deal of self-care. If you don't look after yourself, you can't look after others. So if every story you hear is going to just cause you to fall into a pile and break down, you're not going to be of any use to anybody. So I would see this in my colleagues, the re-traumatization after hearing stories and stories and stories of people who they're trying to assist. And it can get to a point where you just you're resistant and you can't do it anymore and you don't want to do it anymore. And even though you can shut your office and go home every evening and forget about it and have a glass of wine and just relax, it's not always easy to leave it behind. You know somewhere that there's somebody that you know that you've interacted with who's no home to go to and might not have a warm meal that evening or is having huge difficulty in their own life, that can make it very difficult. I mean, what's self-care look like when you're dealing with something that profound? I guess it's understanding and recognizing that. You need to deal with it and be okay with it so you can continue to assist those people mm. who can't assist themselves. Do you see a lot of people within your field seeking out the kind of support oh, yeah. that they Absolutely. must need. I've had to fish some of my colleagues out of the work they're doing and make an appointment for them to go and see a professional just to debrief and counsel them because you can see that they're cracking under the weight of, mm. of all that trauma. One of the things we've been talking about in, in these interviews is discomfort and our willingness to deal with discomfort, the sitting with, the being with, mm -hmm. the other, whoever that is. Mm -hmm. What you're describing is a willingness to, on a daily basis, mm -hmm. face that discomfort mm -hmm. and carry it. That's something that most people just run away from completely. So how do you hold that discomfort? I don't know that we all run away from it. I think there's always somebody who you can relate to, who, who you can empathize with and sympathize with mm -hmm. that you'd like to try and help. And, you know, whether that is somebody you've met through a friend or somebody who's a parent at school. I think we all have that personal contact that makes the narrative personal and mm. gets through the discomfort. But I think the difference is in doing it every day, all day, and yeah. <laughs> being able to do it as your job. You can do it for so long 
and then you might need to just spread your wings a bit and move on and, and let somebody else take over. It's also a measure of your strength as a person and mm. how much you think that you can do and how much you'd like to contribute, which gives you some strength. So in terms of your own strength and your own story, your own narrative, yes. you know, where do you draw from? Where do you get the strength to, that helps you to keep showing up? I think if I couldn't go home to a strong, loving family every day, warm house and things which for me are normal and escape from everything else, it would be very difficult if I was on my own. It would be virtually impossible. But being able to escape every day and go away and, you know, do maths homework or whatever makes a difference. Because so many of the people who do work like this have no personal life. It's hard. They, they it's, sacrifice. Very, it's very, very difficult. The level of sacrifice is high, which is sad and it's unfortunate. And if you're giving so much of yourself, you should save some for yourself. And when we first spoke, we talked about the privilege of being able to go home and yeah, have the glass of wine. Exactly. But actually, it is precisely that privilege that allows you to keep doing it. Yes. Having that safety net to escape to means that I can come back every day and keep doing work which I feel is important. The successes in human rights work can be huge. They can be really significant. Two weeks ago, we got a judgment coming out of Botswana. And Botswana is a country in which same-sex acts are criminalized. And we've been working with two trans individuals to change the gender marker on their ID documents. And there was just a flat refusal from the state authorities to do so. And so we challenged both cases in court and one was heard and we got a judgment from the court and it said, yes, of course, uh, you've got to recognize the dignity of these individuals and you must change the gender marker. So the case is groundbreaking for us in the work we're doing in LGBTI rights across the region. South Africa is in a different situation because there's a recognition of LGBTI rights in South Africa in the law, maybe not in practice, but in the Southern African region it's a complete disaster and respect for rights is very poor and we're seeing arrests of LGBTI activists all over the place. We've seen recent arrests in Tanzania and in Nigeria. So the judgment in Botswana, it's huge and we've been celebrating for days. So the winds are big, but like the fight goes on after that. We count off the 15 days to see whether the state lodges an appeal. <laughs> right. And then we celebrate again. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you will never say, job done, we can go home now, we've succeeded, mm -hmm. we've won. It in, just goes on and on and on. In some sectors, it's the incremental success, which is what you have to applaud and get excited about mm. and encourage, because it all contributes to the big picture. Absolutely. And this issue of rights as a right to your identity is an incredibly relevant global issue. It's in many ways, I mean, I think in Africa, you know, a representation of a, another level of liberation, if you will. And again, there you are using the courts to explore freedom and liberation in ways that maybe people haven't always thought of it here. Absolutely. Last week, we held a really big regional advocacy event focusing on LGBTI individuals and sex workers. And it was held at a fancy Santon hotel. And we had a number of sex workers from across the region attending. And we had a lot of trans sex workers. 
So we were very aware of the bathroom issues and we made sure we put up gender neutral bathroom signs and all of it. And we had to sensitize the hotel. This is the group we have attending. We need your staff to treat them with respect. We need you not to stare, not to point, not to ridicule. Mm. These are guests of your hotel. We expect good behavior. Yes. And they were great. And it was a fantastic event. And I had lunch with a sex worker from Namibia. And I was having a chat with her. Been a sex worker since she was 12 because her family threw her out. Mm. She needed to survive. And it was heartbreaking for me. But she was very matter-of-fact about it. It's the way it is. She's promoting rights for sex workers while being a professional sex worker. And being transgender and a sex worker and black, everything is working against you. Everything. And you're describing working with the highest levels of power to people who we consider almost invisible. You're working across this spectrum. I mean, talk a little bit about that. How does it all fit together for you? I mean, I think that's what makes the work so interesting and It makes you want to do the work every day because it is different. It could be working with transgender populations or war criminals. (laughs) So it's quite varied. And the work I'm doing now works with different groups, with women and children. And the international criminal justice work is pursuing war criminals. But the case that we did pursuing the arrest warrant for al-Bashir was groundbreaking because it's the closest he's ever come to actually being arrested, despite traveling merrily around to many countries. And I think it's a wake-up call for people for whom there are international arrest warrants. What was it like as a young woman moving through this field Mm -hmm. of holding the powerful Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. account? Mm Because it's not always something that we're trained to do or allowed to do. Yeah. And you get a very real sense of being a woman and being a black woman Mm. in the legal sphere. You can identify with that invisibility. (laughs) If you arrive at a meeting or at a courtroom or at an event with a male colleague or a white colleague, they get recognized, even though you might be the senior. And it's something I've been grappling with my whole life that I've been seeing. And it's extremely annoying and frustrating But it's the way that society recognizes male privilege and white privilege without recognizing the role that women and black women are playing in the sector. We talked a little bit about the invisibility of the people whom you're serving. And yet many of us feel that in different kinds of ways, what it feels Mm -hmm. like to just not be considered capable, relevant. Yes, exactly. There is an assumption because you're a woman and because you're black you're not leading a process, or you're not the responsible individual. Your capability is called into question, Mm. which is very difficult. So what do you do with that? Usually usually you embarrass people by saying, I am so-and-so and and I'm doing this, so hello. And people back off or they soften. But it's something that you just get through, you have to deal with. Is it changing? I don't know. It kind of leads me to think about you know, anger and frustration as a driver of change. Mm. And it can't exist in us regularly. It can yes, be draining. Yes, but yes. do you feel anger at the injustice that you see on a daily basis? I do feel anger. I'm angry a lot. But I think it's useful and it's good to be angry. Anger means you can be passionate about something, mm. that you're feeling injustice very, very deeply, mm-hmm. gravely. So I don't necessarily think anger is bad, but Mm. you need to direct it in a positive way. 
You don't want to be lashing out just because you're angry. You're indicating a, a huge amount of empathy and a huge amount of ability on your part to engage. It all goes back to that inherent dignity. Once you speak with somebody and you respect them and you recognize their dignity, they will trust you and they'll trust you to tell you what you need to know to be able to help them. I think everybody has dignity. It's whether or not other people recognize your right. dignity. So what you is know? it like so not to be recognized? It's like you don't exist. Nobody will recognize you. Nobody will help you. Nobody will understand or recognize that you are a person. And it could mean that you are, for all intents and purposes, invisible. You know, I'm wondering how we begin to create more spaces for people to recognize the dignity of others, whether it's the transgender individual or the person from the other country. Mm -hmm. you know, how do we begin socially to create that kind of awareness? If you recognize that you are like other people, you know, you are like the transgender individual, the refugee, the sex worker, you are like them and they are like you. The essential humanity. Absolutely. If you ask somebody to say, you are a refugee, where were you before? And before that and before that, you're the same person. You see it around issues of sexuality, I think. It's about fear. Yeah. So yeah. trying to yeah. kind of reassert a humanity into that is unbelievably challenging on a global scale right now, where it's almost like for many people going the opposite direction. Yes. Just absolutely. go I away. Mean, we see all the anti-immigrant organizations. We see a whole lot of conservatism arriving globally. And I think it's here to stay. You do. We're going to see a move towards conservative politics in Europe and in America. And I hope we don't see it in African countries. But I mean, we, we have our own problems in African countries. You have these two coexisting phenomenon of an unbelievable liberalizing of our norms and values that sits right next to this really visceral backlash against yeah, that. Yeah. And it's like we're living in these parallel realities. Yeah, absolutely. We don't know just how bad it is. And I think it's all very scary. And so as you look ahead and you think about the trajectory of your work, mm -hmm. is it another 16 years? I mean, do you continue to fight these battles? I guess my career will follow a path, which at this time I don't know where it's going. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll continue to do work in this area or in a similar area. And I think if I moved on... There's no shortage of individuals who will fill those spaces mm. and take on those roles. The work will continue. And I've been working with young lawyers and mentoring young lawyers and developing young lawyers for so long that I feel confidence in the ability of younger lawyers to step into this work. Mm. And the connection between law and advocacy? It's a hugely important connection. You can only do so much in law reform or establishing precedents or developing a particular jurisprudence in an area within the court system. And then you need to take it over and raise awareness of the fact that there is a new law or a new decision. And advocacy is where that takes over. So whether that is advocacy at a very domestic level, advocating with government departments to tell them that they can change the gender marker on people's identity documents, or raising these issues before the African Commission, or before the UN platforms to say, well, this particular country is not adhering to its obligations to refugees, or levels of xenophobia and xenophobic outbreaks are not stopping. 
that level of advocacy is very useful because of the respect that those bodies command in asking questions to states to mm. say to South Africa, why are you not respecting the rights of refugees? Mm. That receives an immediate response rather than one NGO asking the state, what are you doing about refugees? Yeah, it's a vital connection, isn't it? For you to get the voice amplified and for Absolutely. them to substantiate the yes. voice with actual jurisprudence. Yes, exactly. We need you. <laughs> it's vital because yep. I think we're in the middle of this great process mm -hmm. of reimagining democracy. Yes. And you're doing it on a daily basis. And I do think that there's this going inwards. Mm -hmm. So many of us are going in to a safe place mm -hmm. because the world, as you said, feels quite yeah. scary right yeah. now. Living in your cocoon, in your bubble. Yeah. yeah, It's safe in your little space. Absolutely. And when you have, you know, you're in a space with individuals who are more diverse than yourself, you get a really good sense of the fact that you're so regular, cisgender, you fit all the norms, heterosexual, woman in a woman's body, in a woman's head, compared to all of these other people who are mm. struggling. Yeah. I feel like the paradigm of a lot of development and justice work is changing from, you know, that savior complex mm -hmm. to allyship. They're just walking with, the being with and meeting people on their terms for who they are. And do we accept the fact that there's a necessity to do that? And mm -hmm. it's not you walk over there, mm -hmm. I'll walk over here. And But we actually need to find a way to come together. I've always said, I enjoy the work I do. I'd like to be able to do it quietly without anybody bothering me mm. and without them, you know, criticizing and pointing fingers. I would just like to get on with it. But then when it gets, when the heat is up, you really do need to respond. And it's when you need your friends around you mm. and your supporters to back you up. And it's also when you know who your friends are. How do the cases come to you? Or how do you either, choose what either, you get involved Either they with? come to us uh -huh. and we say yes, no, maybe, depending on how much money we have and how much time we have available. To, If we take on a case, we'll take it on all of it. So we want to be involved in everything. We'll draft the papers, we'll consult with clients, we'll draft heads of argument, we'll sit in court with local lawyers. They'll present it, we will assist them, they will be the face of the case, we'll pay them to run it, we'll pay NGOs to do the advocacy, but like we want to be seriously involved in it. And there are some issues which we, you know, like there's some elections, we think we want to be involved, we want sure. to do something, so we'll contact an organization oh, okay. saying we want to do this, would you do it with us? And that's how we run it. You knew what your purpose was. Your kind of moral compass yeah. was very firmly set. Yes. Which means that you can weather whatever you're going through. It doesn't make it easy. No, though. it doesn't make it easy, but you know why you're doing yeah. it. That really clear sense of, I'm going to get through this mm -hmm. because I know why. I knew I had a purpose, you know, which made it easier for me. But like going into a situation where you know you're preparing for battle is hard. Very hard. Mentally taxing. Yeah. And Maybe. like you have no tools, you know, you've put on some lipstick, you've brushed your hair and you just arrive. <laughs> Such a pleasure. I really admire what you're doing. And This is a conversation about migration, of course, about refugees, but it's also about another kind of fluidity. It's about identities in motion. Kajal and her team are working through the courts to help individuals and broader society to navigate this fluidity and find a principled way to explore issues of belonging. It feels like the whole world is grappling with this idea of belonging right now. 
Can identity, whether it's a national identity or gender, be fixed? Or can it evolve over the course of a lifetime? For Kajal, the courts are the most logical, the fairest way of exploring these ideas and bringing humanity back into the discussion. It's not just us and them. In such fearful and divided times, Kajal forces us to look at them, not as a category, but as human beings. And to see ourselves, fellow global citizens searching for dignity and peace. Courageous Conversations is supported by the Ford Foundation and produced by Jen Warren, with music courtesy of Benjamin Verdery. Follow us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Search for Courageous Conversations. You can also visit gillianreilly.com slash podcasts for more information or to listen online. And we have a new website. Visit soundpage.fm slash courageous conversations. Thanks for listening.